KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday, April 8th. How'd the first day in the orange tier go for San Diego businesses? We'll have that next, just after the headlines. Following a move by UC San Diego, San Diego State University now says it too will return to in-person learning and on-campus housing in the fall term. SDSU plans to share updated guidance next week for faculty and researchers looking to get access to their labs this spring. A more comprehensive return to academic spaces is expected in the summer. That's according to the City News Service. Police in Calexico broke up an encampment for farm workers on Wednesday in Imperial County. The encampment had been set up in January for the farm workers, some of whom were homeless. It's to give them a space to stay after working in the fields. Calexico owns the land, and the camp became a point of contention for a divided city council. A nonprofit was on site to help offer homeless services to the farm workers. To learn more about this story, go to inewsource.org. The National Weather Service has extended a wind advisory for the San Diego mountains and deserts through midnight tonight. Western winds are expected up to 30 miles per hour, with gusts at 55 miles per hour. Officials advise residents to watch out for blown down tree limbs and power lines. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Wednesday was San Diego's first day in the state's orange COVID-19 tier. That means increased capacities at San Diego businesses. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman checked back in with some of the local businesses that KPBS has been following since last year's lockdown. Oh, that's awesome. You know, we get to increase our capacity indoors by 25%, and I think it gives consumers a little bit more confidence. Just outside Petco Park, City Tacos owner Gerald Torres is opening up a new location that was more than a year in the making. Basically, it was scheduled to open in March of last year, but then COVID hit. Now things are different. Fans can be seated inside Petco Park, and now that we're in the state's orange reopening tier, the Padres can increase their stadium capacity to 33%. There's a lot of positive energy and and positive attitude in our industry that things are opening back up, that we can all get back to work and make a living, support our families, support our staff. Brant Crenshaw owns Social Tap, which is also right next to Petco Park. I can't wait till we get completely opened up, but you know, this isn't a bad alternative. Now he can increase his indoor capacity, which has allowed him to bring back more staff, but things are not entirely back to normal. This year, you know, a little different, you know, butts in every seat. 
you know, you're not standing at the bar, you're not mingling around, you know, safety protocols are a little different. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll take this over last year because last year was, I mean, we were in a lockdown. He and others say they're feeling a renewed sense of optimism, especially now that the governor has announced a target date of June 15th to lift nearly all COVID-19 restrictions. It's the first time that we would have a hard date to actually plan around. Jess Pierce is the manager of Ale Tales Taproom in the East Village, which opened just a couple months before the pandemic first hit. Just a constant adaptation. We miss people at the bar. We miss strangers meeting each other at the bar, but it'll eventually get back there. This spot is less than half a mile away from Petco Park, and Pierce is hoping to see some Padre fans this season, especially now that we're in the orange reopening tier. Uh, let's go to the left. But business owners say they have to gradually scale up their operations. It's still a slow process. People are gaining that confidence to go out and, and, you know, enjoy lunches and enjoy dinners. And and we have to grow along with it. Uh, If you don't, you know, your numbers are not going to be right and and you put the business in jeopardy. Even with progress, California Restaurant Association President Jot Condi is estimating 30 percent of eateries statewide will shut their doors because of the pandemic. We hear every day, every day that goes by, um, there's restaurants that are just, you know, um, you know, on the edge and um, and many of them fall off. So we fully uh, expect that in between now and June 15, there will be more restaurants that just have to throw in the towel. And that reporting from KPBS's Matt Hoffman. California has administered more than 4.2 million COVID-19 vaccines to some of the state's hardest-hit communities. KPBS's Melissa May tells us how San Diego is helping its disadvantaged areas get vaccinated. Equity continues to be a focus of vaccine efforts in San Diego. The hardest-hit communities account for 40 percent of COVID cases and deaths within the lowest quartile of the Healthy Places Index, or HPI. It's about improving the health of our black and brown uh, members of the Southeast San Diego area. Events like today's Community Health and Resource Fair at the Jackie Robinson YMCA help make vaccines more accessible. Founder of the health fair, Dr. Susanna Flalo, received a request from Governor Newsom to help. First and foremost, we're trying to get our community vaccinated. So um, we were gifted with a thousand Johnson and Johnson vaccines that um, UCSD is here with the volunteers to provide for our community. Along with administering vaccines, events like this are educating people about getting it. Breast cancer survivor and founder of Many Shades of Pink, Wendy Sherald, took the vaccine advice. I realized that I would be out here unprotected. So that's really what made me the education and wanting to protect myself and my family. South Bay resident Ricky Salazar was grateful to have easier access to the vaccine. This is uh, fantastic, you know, for this, uh, for our community. We're, we're hurt so much in our businesses. You know, we want to get all, all the business going again. The California Department of Public Health is still allocating 40 percent of vaccines to these areas and will continue to partner with community-based programs. The CDPH also has plans for a new program to text people in certain zip codes when vaccine appointments are available. And that was KPBS's Melissa May. Border Patrol agents are rescuing more and more young children left to fend for themselves on this side of the U.S.-Mexico border. As KPBS's Maya Trabolsi reports, on Monday afternoon, two young children abandoned at the border were rescued by Border Patrol agents. 
The siblings, a five-year-old girl and six-year-old boy, were dropped in Hakumba where the border fencing meets large boulders. The agents had spotted a man and a woman with the children before they were hoisted into the U.S. side. Border Patrol agent Angel Moreno says the children were visibly upset and without provisions like food or water. The only thing that they do have them with them is a note uh, with the phone number of their mother. Uh, and they also had the, their mother's name and phone number, I believe, on their forearm written. The children, who are Mexican nationals, were taken in by the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement. This incident is just the latest in the influx of children being left alone at the international border. Since uh, April of 2020, uh, not only the United States Border Patrol, but CBP as a whole has seen an increase uh, in human apprehensions and the apprehensions of men, women and children. Last week, two Ecuadorian children were rescued after being dropped over a 14-foot border fence in New Mexico, near the border city of El Paso, Texas. And on April 1st, a 10-year-old migrant boy was found alone in a field in Texas, left there by the group he was traveling with. And that reporting from KPBS's Maya Trabolsi. Across California, more than 200 people have died of COVID-19 in state prisons. Donovan State Prison in Otay Mesa has been among some of the deadliest. Source investigative reporter Mary Plummer has new details about inmates there who have died of the virus. The crisis peaked in mid-December. COVID-19 had spread quickly. About 20 percent of people incarcerated at Donovan were known to have the infection. Many were relocated within the prison to try and control the virus. Over the next five weeks, 18 inmates died of COVID-19. One of them was Gilbert Rodriguez, who was serving a life sentence with the possibility of parole. His son, Ryan Rodriguez, says the family learned of his death the day after Christmas. No one had told them he'd gotten sick. One part of me, you know, was fearful, of course, that, you know, COVID is running around and it's, and it's entering these prisons, but certainly shocked that I got a phone call about him passing as opposed to, hey, your father contracted COVID and here's what we're doing about it. My news source uncovered that his father was one of three men at Donovan found dead or dying in their cells of COVID-19. They were all 65 or older with pre-existing medical conditions. They died within eight days of each other. During that same time, five others at Donovan died of the virus at hospitals. I news source pieced together what happened through county medical examiner records, death certificates, and interviews. Rodriguez's family asked the prison what happened, but was given very few details. We don't know, you know, what the protocols should have been. We certainly don't know if they were followed. So whether he was, you know, given treatment or whether he was isolated, a person in his conditions with obviously, uh, you know, diabetes, you know, uh, overweight, etc., high blood pressure, I would expect that there would be some treatment. About a month after Gilbert Rodriguez's death, the family received a letter from his cellmate. It said their father had requested medical help after testing positive for the virus, but staff told him no. According to the cellmate, he coughed two nights in a row getting little sleep, then seemed to have a heart attack or stroke and died. It sounds more likely than not that nothing happened, and he was left in his cell to sort of work it out. Through a spokesperson, the prison warden declined multiple interview requests for this story. Even so, corrections department officials say they've worked tirelessly to address the virus, and inmates with COVID-19 are screened twice a day by medical staff. 
But experts say that isn't always enough, and court filings indicate Donovan's response to the pandemic has been among the worst of California prisons. In December, the prison oversight office found guards there had the most citations for refusing to social distance or wear masks. It's something Mike Spilker witnessed himself. He was incarcerated at Donovan before being released during the pandemic. We literally would be walking the track, kind of isolated, and walk by a group of correction officers not wearing masks with them telling us to put our masks on. Spilker says a few days before he got out, he was kept in a holding cell with an inmate who shortly after tested positive for COVID-19. The state paid for him to stay in a hotel after he was released to quarantine. Advocates and public health experts say the mixing of people with COVID-19 with those who aren't sick is well documented at Donovan. And it's dangerous. UC Hastings law professor Hadar Aviram reviewed our findings. She says the atrocities that have happened to incarcerated people during the pandemic are hard to comprehend. We have to keep in mind that even if you believe in harsh punishment and you believe that people should do the time if they committed the crime... Nobody was actually sentenced to die of COVID in their cell. And she says when the virus spreads in prisons, it puts the entire community at risk. Each day, hundreds of people go in and out of prisons in California. And that means that if you're in a county that has a prison or a jail or both, you are at a higher risk of getting sick yourself. Over a dozen correctional facilities operate in San Diego and Imperial counties. Statewide, nearly 50,000 people in prisons have contracted the virus. And that was iNewsource investigative reporter Mary Plummer. Join us tomorrow for part two of this investigation. It's co-reported by Jill Castellano at iNewsource, an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Coming up, how to start the conversation about mental health in the Latinx community. We have that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Just on its own, mental health is a hard topic to talk about. And for some cultures, it can get outright ignored. And for the Latinx community, there are often barriers preventing access to mental health care. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne looked into some of those barriers. And a warning, this report includes a graphic description of domestic violence and discussions of self-harm that some listeners may find disturbing. Estela Chamu's depression began when she left her hometown in Mexico at the age of 17. A family friend told her parents he had a job for Chamu in California, babysitting two American children. But there was no job, and the man who took her from her family wanted her as his woman instead. For 15 years, Chamu endured a forced and abusive relationship. My life has been really sad. I would cry. I couldn't go anywhere. 
I had no activities. I was barred to the ranch. Until one day she had enough and left. Once on her own, Chamu knew she wasn't okay and sought out help. But the Latinx community faces language barriers, less access to health care, and cultural influences that keep them from getting help with mental health. The mentality we have as Latinos is I'm not crazy, and it's not that we're crazy. It's that we need support of a doctor, a specialist. One of the biggest barriers is the stigma of being labeled crazy. You have these people telling you, looking you in the face and telling you, you can just pray this demon away. Andrea Vasquez was diagnosed with major depressive disorder when she was 16. The anger was the bigger part of it, the depression, the panic attacks that I'd been having. And at that moment, I told him, you know, this is a crisis because I don't want to live. Vasquez's depression got so bad she began self-harming and checked into a behavioral health center something her Latinx parents had a hard time accepting. Um, and that's a big thing in the Latin community, that it's to believe that if there's something wrong with your child, it was your fault. The discomfort over mental health within the Latinx community also has to do with the lack of therapists that can understand the culture and the problems they face. It's really hard to find a therapist that connects with those issues. Hey, I, I think I have problems with my family because of my culture. And you're talking to a white male therapist that has no idea what you're talking about. Then there are therapists like Lizette Ma, who is Latina and says she can relate to the cultural influences Latinos face when it comes to mental health help. Grandma believes that if we pray to God and we do, you know, a rosario and if we go, you know, pair prayers to the church, it's God's going to grant us a miracle and the symptoms are going to go away. Ma says she has to be culturally sensitive to the points of views of her patients and also incorporates them in her practice for successful treatment. Okay, yes, we can pray, but this needs something more. We have to respect their belief system, but also work with them. Um, so what I tried to do is incorporate those beliefs. Ma says there is still progress to be made in mental health services and thinks the pandemic made the need more urgent. Um, you know, there's all these things that we haven't even thought about or actually even seen because we're still in the midst of the pandemic. As people rebuild their lives from the aftermath of the pandemic, Ma suggests not sleeping on mental health. And I think that we need to educate people that it doesn't simply go away. We need to learn and teach people the way to navigate and the way to seek out resources for their specific needs. And how do they do it? And how can they find someone that they connect with? Chamu is building that bridge to resources for her community as part of Poder Popular, a North County advocacy group. For me, it's a new life. Since I left my life with domestic violence and got involved with the groups, it's the most marvelous thing I have found in my life. Chamu says these activities have been the best medicine for her to get out of depression and help her community along the way. That was KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.